Chapter 5 We're Here, Now What? of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 5 We're Here, Now What? Chapter 5 We're Here, Now What? Page 111. As 3rd Infantry Division troops seized downtown Baghdad on April 2, 2003, Lieutenant General William Wallace called Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, Operations Chief Major General James D. Thurman for instructions. Quote, Okay, Bubba, we're here, Wallace said. Now what? End quote. Wallace's question foreshadowed what became the private views of many coalition commanders in the weeks following the toppling of Saddam Hussein. Like Wallace, many were unprepared for the new situation that emerged as the Iraqi state collapsed, which necessitated a combination of combat operations, intense policing operations, reconstruction, and the establishment of new local governments. As they had done in the exercises leading up to the invasion, U.S. ground forces expected to be able to seize their objectives, conduct after-action reviews of the operation, and prepare for redeployment, leaving the post-conflict phase as some other agency's responsibility. These expectations were reinforced by overly optimistic strategic assessments that the Iraqi population would welcome the coalition and resume normal activities quickly. The Army and Marine forces that had spent their organizational energy focusing on their immediate objectives of destroying the Iraqi military and forcing regime change were not prepared for the complicated Phase 4 they were about to face. The speed with which coalition forces arrived in Baghdad also caught the few planners at CFLCC and the U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, who were finalizing Phase 4 plans by surprise, meaning that much of that planning was completed while the transition to Phase 4 was already in progress. Consequently, CFLCC conducted a very rough rolling transition from major combat operations to stability operations, with some units beginning their humanitarian assistance missions while still engaged in combat operations. As CFLCC scrambled to reposition its limited forces across the contested territory, units also encountered new enemies that intelligence estimates mischaracterized and underestimated. Phase 4 operations were complicated by a number of other factors. Widespread public disorder and looting surprised coalition commanders, and the coalition's efforts to restore order undermined the legitimacy of the entire coalition enterprise in Iraq. Neither CFLCC nor Fifth Corps had accounted for looting during planning for the invasion, and neither they nor CENTCOM were prepared to declare martial law in Iraq in the interim. In addition, the collapse of the regime did not mark the end of major combat operations. Iraq's borders with Syria, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia were wide open, and Saddam, his sons, and most of the Ba'ath Party senior military and internal security leaders remained at large, as were suspected weapons of mass destruction or WMD materials. CFLCC units continued to encounter pockets of resistance in Baghdad and Anbar, while Mosul, Kirkuk, and the upper Tigris River Valley remained unsecured by coalition forces, although many government buildings and posts were seized by Peshmerga and Badr Corps militias. As Lieutenant General David D. McKiernan later recalled, quote, We're in Baghdad. We know the Ba'ath Party has ruptured, no one can find Saddam, but in a city of six million people, we don't know if we're in control yet. There is not a lot of combat going on. It is a fluid situation. We are still trying to exploit WMD, or weapons of mass destruction, sites, and there is fighting in other areas of Iraq, so it is a very complex, convoluted situation. End quote. Iraqi State Collapse Page 112 The Dissolution of Public Order once it became clear that Saddam was no longer in power, Iraqi citizens began wild celebrations in the streets of Baghdad and other liberated areas. Coalition troops were unprepared for the utter dissolution of public order that followed. Within days of the regime collapse, Baghdad and other areas of Iraq descended into chaos. Looting and arson began in Baghdad almost immediately, and disorder spread throughout southern Iraq and in Kirkuk as well. 
Opportunists took advantage and ravaged Ba'ath Party and Iraqi government facilities, critical infrastructure sites, public houses, and the homes of wealthy Ba'athists who had fled. Regime loyalists and security and intelligence personnel who remained destroyed a substantial amount of government security documents and ministry information, all of which was intricately maintained only in hard-copy form. The Iraqi police structure was severely damaged, and many police stations were destroyed. Looting at hospitals resulted in the disappearance of much-needed pharmaceuticals. The National Museum of Baghdad was looted as well, and ancient Iraqi artifacts quickly began appearing in black markets outside of Iraq. By April 11th, CFLCC recognized that the presence of coalition troops deterred looting, and McKiernan ordered units to increase patrols around important governance locations, hospitals, and other facilities. CFLCC tasked its civil affairs units with helping to recover local museum items and, with some outside assistance, made progress towards that goal by the end of April. The gradual reduction in looting and violence was at least partially due to coalition units' efforts to find local police willing to conduct joint patrols in various areas of Baghdad, and CFLCC began providing new uniforms to the Iraqi police to distinguish them from the old regime. By April 16th, coalition and Iraqi police joint patrols were on the streets of Baghdad. CFLCC judged that the looting was dramatically reduced and that Iraqis, in Baghdad at least, were beginning to resume normal activities. Isolated pockets of looting in other cities and ammunition depots continued across Iraq through the end of April 2003. In some areas, the looting of April 2003 was accompanied by rioting that the small number of Iraqi police who remained at their posts were unable to quell. Demonstrations in Baghdad, Anbar, and some cities of southern Iraq increased steadily toward the end of April. During some of those demonstrations, CFLCC units determined that anti-coalition agitators in the crowds were attempting to provoke coalition troops into a violent response to pin blame for the instability on the coalition. Another hurdle to halting the demonstrations arose as Iraqis began competing with each other for political power and positions in hastily organized governance structures. Just ten days after Baghdad's fall, CFLCC observed that Iraqi religious leaders from various sects were, quote, establishing themselves as local leaders or pushing support for their designated candidates in the cities, end quote, creating local rivalries. In response to rising civil unrest, many CFLCC units began implementing curfews, especially ahead of major events that included the Shia Arba'in holiday and Saddam's birthday. Changing Rules of Engagement the coalition's difficulty in arresting the looters was symptomatic of a larger problem, unclear and varied application of the rules of engagement, the guidelines under which coalition troops were instructed to use force. The rules of engagement had already changed significantly from the beginning of the invasion through its completion. Both the 1003V and COBRA II war plans initially called for very restrictive rules of engagement against non-uniformed personnel, and those who were captured in uniform were expressly categorized as prisoners of war. Quote, There was also a lingering concern if we should put U.S. soldiers in a position to stand between the Iraqi people and symbols of the regime from whom they had been liberated, end quote, recalled Wallace. Because the coalition did not want the Iraqis to perceive them as oppressors, coalition commanders directed their troops to apply the minimum amount of force needed for each situation. During the invasion, however, commanders at all levels had gradually eased restrictions on the use of force as the number of paramilitary attacks by the Fedayeen Saddam and others increased. As looting and disorder spread throughout Iraq, commanders were unclear about how to apply the rules of engagement that had governed the invasion. Coalition units had shifted from taking prisoners of war to taking looters and criminals into their custody, designating them as detainees rather than prisoners of war. Commanders and civilian leaders differed on how to deal with looters and violent dissidents they could not capture. Some believed it was best to allow the Iraqis to blow off some steam after years of oppressive rule. On the opposite end of the spectrum, others proffered that shooting looters and instituting martial law might be suitable deterrents to disorder, albeit unpopular ones. After a discussion concerning a theoretical order to shoot looters in the act was leaked to the press, 
Secretary of Defense, or SecDef, Donald H. Rumsfeld, expressed his concern that the rules of engagement established by the headquarters in Baghdad, quote, were being diluted as they were passed down the chain of command, end quote. Lieutenant General John P. Abizade, empowered as the CENTCOM deputy to make decisions about Iraq, quickly agreed and decided to, quote, re-energize the chain of command to ensure they had robust rules of engagement in place and that every soldier and Marine understood them. End quote. In response to the emerging circumstances on the ground, CENTCOM made an addendum to the rules of engagement in Op Ord 1003V on April 25th. These additional rules of engagement contained provisions for commanders to implement curfews and the use of force during civil-military operations, which included authorization to use deadly force to prevent the theft or destruction of property belonging to U.S. troops or private Iraqi citizens. U.S. forces also were permitted to use deadly force to prevent the escape of detainees or enemy prisoners of war, to exercise law enforcement powers, and to guard WMD and other hazardous materials that were deemed, quote, inherently dangerous to others, end quote. In addition, the addendum permitted commanders to authorize searches and detention of civilians, vehicles, and property, and to use non-lethal riot control agents on unruly crowds and demonstrations. Brigade commanders had the authority to retain detainees in their custody for up to 10 days, after which they were required to present probable cause for holding them longer in a, quote, hearing held by a competent authority, end quote. Despite Abizade's efforts and those of his subordinate commanders, the rules of engagement and directives concerning coalition unit behavior in the summer of 2003 remained loosely understood and applied across the theater. For example, the order to conduct presence patrols to stop looting was not uniformly applied. The Light Infantry 101st Airborne Division conducted many foot patrols, while the mechanized 3rd Infantry Division remained more tied to its mechanized platforms and tended not to engage in dismounted patrols. Moreover, there were often no specific instructions for how patrolling units should respond to looting. For the remainder of the conflict, some units maintained the more restrictive rules of engagement, believing that shooting or detaining large numbers of civilians undermined stability and security. Others adopted more permissive rules of engagement, asserting that harsher penalties for misbehavior and violence deterred further violent behavior and guerrilla-like attacks. Finally, the new rules of engagement really applied only to American units and personnel, not coalition partners, and some conflicts in the theater rules of engagement were not immediately resolved. Consistent understanding and application of the rules of engagement remained problematic for the rest of the war. Combat Operations Continue Although the Ba'ath Party was clearly no longer in charge of Iraq after April 9th, combat operations to eliminate pockets of Iraqi military and paramilitary resistance continued, with Baghdad and some other population centers not yet fully under coalition control. Quote, This fight is nowhere near over, McKiernan told his subordinate commanders on April 10th, but we have momentum and we've got initiative on our side. So everywhere we get in contact with the remaining regime resistance, we're going to get a stranglehold on it. End quote. From April 9th to 11th, 5th Corps and 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, completed the outer cordon of Baghdad and continued to quash enemy resistance in the city. They secured key lines of communications and highways leading into Baghdad, secured Saddam International Airport, and destroyed the remnants of the Iraqi Republican Guard units that remained around Iraq's central zone. CFLCC units also turned their attention toward seizing physical symbols of the regime, including Ba'ath Party headquarters, Fedayeen outposts, and Saddam's special security and intelligence headquarters. They also secured ministry buildings, major infrastructure, and other government facilities in Baghdad. The 5th Corps and 1st MEF continued to clear Baghdad through April 15th. Apart from encountering, quote, several disorganized counterattacks by irregular forces, end quote, the 5th Corps and 1st MEF units in Baghdad did not face significant enemy resistance. They easily destroyed the technical vehicles full of fighters and small outposts with close air support. South of Baghdad, CFLCC troops secured population centers along the main lines of communication. The 101st Airborne Division secured Karbala and Najaf and cleared Hilla. 
The 82nd Airborne Division cleared Samawa, and Task Force Tarawa secured Duania, Numania, and the highways leading into Kut before advancing east toward Mysen. En route to Amara, the Marines destroyed abandoned equipment from the 10th and 14th Iraqi Army Divisions but encountered no resistance. In Basra province, the British 1st Armored Division secured the remainder of the Rumaila oil fields and Kurna and patrolled Basra and Zubair. While Task Force Tarawa isolated Kut, other 1st MEF units maneuvered north of Baghdad. The 1st MEF troops crossed the Diyala River northeast of Baghdad on April 9th and prepared to secure areas near Saddam's home in Salahuddin province. Between April 13th and 15th, 1st MEF attacked Bakuba and Tikrit and secured Baiji, Samara, and the highways leading from those cities into Baghdad. They then prepared to secure the remainder of Salahuddin province ahead of the arrival of the 4th Infantry Division, which had made its way by sea to Kuwait after its northern invasion route was shut off by the Turkish government. Elsewhere in northern Iraq, Colonel Charles Cleveland's Combined Joint Operations Task Force North, or CJSOTF-N, fought remnants of the Iraqi Army and Republican Guard divisions. By April 13th, the task force judged that the Iraqi 1st and 2nd Corps were reduced to about 30 to 40 percent of their original strength, with the remainder of the forces having deserted. The fighters of Ansar al-Islam who survived the coalition airstrikes had crossed over into Iran, and CJSOTFN verified that the organization no longer had a presence on Iraqi soil. In Nineveh province, CJSOTFN and its Peshmerga partners had put the Iraqi 5th Corps to flight and entered Mosul, northern Iraq's largest population center, and the location at which the Iraqi 5th Corps commander surrendered to the task force on April 11th. Meanwhile, CJSOTF West, or CJSOTFW, began establishing checkpoints on Iraq's considerable borders with Jordan and Syria. Portions of a separate Special Operations Task Force, the Rangers, and the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment started to transition from operations against Iraqi military and paramilitary forces to hunting high-value regime targets. A Country Full of Weapons in the turbulent weeks after Baghdad's fall, coalition units discovered an astonishing amount of munitions across the country. In the months prior to the invasion, Saddam's forces placed large numbers of weapons and stockpiles of ammunition in dispersed caches to improve access for Iraqi forces that Saddam assumed would be immobilized by coalition air power. Many of those caches remained intact after the Iraqi regime was defeated, along with the vast stores the Iraqi military had dispersed during the 12 years of no-fly zones. In addition, many usable tanks, armored personnel carriers, and artillery pieces, abandoned during combat operations, remained vulnerable to looters and militia groups. CFLCC and Coalition Forces Special Operations Component Command, or CFSOCC, leaders worried that munitions and equipment looted from these caches would find their way into the black market and either be used against coalition forces or be used by Iraq's factions against one another if the caches were not secured. For coalition ground forces, the scale of that mission was overwhelming. Many of the caches were spread across large areas virtually impossible for units to physically secure, and the sheer volume of munitions was equally daunting. When 4th Infantry Division troops arrived at Taji Military Depot on April 18th, for example, they found that they had to secure and empty hundreds of bunkers. The weapons ammunition depot outside of Rutbo was larger in size and composition and required significant numbers of troops to secure it. Less than three weeks into Phase 4, CFLCC assessed that major problems remained with leftover Iraqi arms and munitions. In northern Iraq, CJSOTFN was concerned about the equipment the regime's troops had abandoned, some of which was left fully loaded with ammunition, and proposed establishing several locations to store the armored vehicles and artillery pieces scattered throughout the north. However, CFLCC had no troops to allocate to that mission, and the Peshmerga seized the tanks, armored personnel carriers, artillery pieces, small arms, and ammunition, and moved them north of the Green Line into Kurdish-controlled territory. From Humanitarian Assistance to Reconstruction and Governance 
In his commander's intent for Cobra II, McKiernan envisioned a blurred or rolling transition between Phase Three and Phase Four, in which humanitarian assistance would begin in cleared areas even before the conclusion of major combat operations. In fact, McKiernan and Wallace both expected their post-regime focus to be almost exclusively on humanitarian missions, much as it had been after the Gulf War. This assumption proved incorrect. By the end of April 2003, CFLCC's units had shifted from clearing and securing territory to restoring essential services, repairing infrastructure, and establishing meager local and national governance capabilities. The British forces began their humanitarian aid distribution in Umm Qasr on March 31st and later spread to Basra and Zubair. CFLCC units in Nasiriyah, Najaf, Samawa, and Baghdad followed suit in mid-April, and the Marines established a civil military operations center at the Palestine Hotel in Baghdad. Civil affairs units opened the port of Umm Qasr as a theater humanitarian distribution center and prepared to reinitiate the oil-for-food redistribution program as planned. These humanitarian assistance operations were, however, much smaller than what most CENTCOM leaders envisaged for the post-hostilities period, because the widespread humanitarian crises that CENTCOM and policymakers expected did not occur. Instead, CFLCC discovered that Iraqis' most pressing concerns were not food and water, but the restoration of basic services and functions of the state, meaning CFLCC units abruptly shifted from humanitarian assistance to finding Iraqi engineers, technocrats, and bureaucrats to help them maintain the electrical, water, sanitation, medical, and oil systems and infrastructure, another mission for which CFLCC was unprepared. In addition to these new infrastructure operations, CFLCC began to assume some governance-related responsibilities for which they had not planned. These included recalling local police to duty, enforcing the rule of law, and assisting with the establishment of the new Iraqi provincial and national governments. On April 10th, CENTCOM directed CFLCC to, quote, provide all support necessary to establish a central coordination mechanism within each governorate or province of Iraq, end quote, likely in response to pressure from both U.S. policymakers and Iraqis to prepare the country for Iraqi rule. CFLCC units operating in relatively stable areas like Hilla and Basra began to establish interim city councils. Meanwhile, the CFLCC planners who had continued during the invasion to develop Eclipse II, the Phase IV sequel to Cobra II, found themselves in the middle of planning operations that were already ongoing. CFLCC did not issue the commander's intent for Phase IV until April 15th, shortly after rushing through a more final version of Eclipse II that differed somewhat from the initial version prepared in early March. Far fewer forces were available to secure the country than CFLCC planners anticipated. The 4th Infantry Division had just arrived, the 1st Armored Division was preparing to enter the country, and, apart from scattered and disorganized Iraqi police, there were no recalled Iraqi security forces available to assist the coalition in maintaining law and order. The threat, too, was different. Instead of anticipating that the greatest sources of instability would be reprisal attacks, the new Eclipse II judged the major threat would be, quote, the Sunni minority, primarily represented by remnants of the regime-sponsored paramilitary forces, end quote, and ethno-religious flashpoints in Mosul, Kirkuk, Saddam City, later renamed Sadr City, Karbala, Najaf, and Basra. Notably, Anbar province's cities were omitted from the CFLCC estimates. The new version of Eclipse II also identified the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, or ORHA, rather than the Coalition Joint Task Force Iraq, or CJTFI, as the lead agency for civilian governance. Unfortunately, the Eclipse II plan came too late to prevent significant disparities in each division's interpretations of how to implement Phase IV directives in their areas of operations, areas that varied enormously in their characteristics. Moreover, 5th Corps and 1st MEF were unprepared to incorporate the lone agency assigned to run post-regime Iraq, ORHA, into their efforts to restore stability. Just prior to the invasion, CFLCC first began incorporating ORHA into its Phase IV planning and operations in Kuwait. Like CFLCC, ORHA quickly acknowledged that reconstruction issues were far more pressing than humanitarian requirements. 
What CFLCC and ORHA discovered once inside Iraq was that Saddam had not invested in the physical infrastructure of the country for years, particularly in the Shia South and Sadr City. The water, sewage, electricity, transportation, and communications infrastructure in those areas was decades old and crumbling, in much more dire circumstances than anyone in CENTCOM or CFLCC had guessed. An early prospective hurdle emerged when large numbers of Iraqi utility workers failed to arrive to perform their jobs due to pay disputes in early April. Over the next two weeks, coalition units worked with ORHA to come up with expedient methods of payment using Iraqi civil leaders as designated pay representatives. Governance was a much more complicated mission for ORHA. Just days after the fall of the regime, retired Lieutenant General Jay Garner was surprised to receive instructions from Washington to have ORHA build governing capacity within the Iraqi Interim Authority in Baghdad. Like CENTCOM's leaders, Garner had been planning to build governance structures starting at the municipal level and then build toward national elections. The decision to run the process from the top down, originating from Undersecretary of Defense Douglas J. Fyth's office, meant that Garner needed to adjust how he developed relationships with the Iraqis. Throughout April, Garner strove to meet important Iraqi leaders, apprise them of the ORHA mission, and gain their support for an interim Iraqi government. He met with Kurdish leaders in the third week of April and began liaising with national-level leaders shortly thereafter, subsequently establishing offices in Mosul and Baghdad. CFLCC assisted ORHA with organizing the first meetings of the Iraqi Interim Authority in Baghdad on April 26th and 28th, and a CFLCC-brokered security town hall meeting in Baghdad on April 29th. On April 27th, Garner conducted his first radio broadcast in which he, quote, urged the Iraqi people to return to normalcy and assured them that ORHA would assist in their recovery and pledged to expedite the establishment of the new Iraqi government, end quote. ORHA personnel and resources continued to flow into the country for the remainder of April, and Garner planned to have his headquarters in Baghdad fully operational by May 3, 2003, not knowing that his organization would be gone in less than 30 days. As the demand for reconstruction and local policing increased, mission requirements for engineers, civil affairs personnel, and military police expanded considerably. However, the comparatively small numbers of engineer, civil affairs, and military police battalions were task-organized to support the divisions rather than the broader theater during the invasion, and there was no plan to reallocate those forces to support either ORHA or CFLCC in Phase 4. This lack of support left the Theater Command and the Reconstruction Authority with no assets with which to begin the reconstruction. By mid-April, McKiernan's command began to consolidate and redistribute the support units for the reconstruction mission, though most of them ultimately remained in Baghdad. New Actors on the Battlefield The transition to Phase 4 also introduced a host of new actors to CFLCC battle space. Coalition partners who had declined to participate in combat operations began sending military forces and humanitarian assistance units to support stability operations. Jordan established a field hospital west of Baghdad, and Italy agreed to set up its own field hospital in Baghdad proper. CFLCC met with a delegation from Japan to discuss using Japanese defense forces in northern Iraq. Albania and El Salvador sent forces to assist the 101st Airborne Division in Mosul, and CFLCC began assembling a multinational force to assume 1st MEF's battle space as 1st MEF redeployed to the United States. The number of private contractors also increased substantially once stability operations commenced. Most of CFLCC's subordinates used systems that required contractor maintenance, most notably the 4th Infantry Division, whose deployment was briefly imperiled by the sheer number of private contractors who refused to support the unit in direct combat. The arrival of civilian-run agencies on the battlefield, along with increased logistical requirements after the fall of the regime, generated an increasing demand for contractor support. ORHA was particularly reliant on private companies for its reconstruction operations, including Raytheon and Kellogg Brown and Root. Other contractors provided a range of services, including personal and facilities security, training and advising capabilities, communications management, and life support operations. 
Problems in Northern Iraq As the Iraqi army in northern Iraq melted away after April 11th, Cleveland and his Special Forces troops quickly found that they faced challenges far beyond the means of a CJSOTF to handle. The first challenge was averting another Kurdish civil war between the Kurdistan Democratic Party, or KDP, and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or PUK, while also preventing Kurdish reprisals against Arabs in Kirkuk and Mosul. CJSOTFN attempted to work with Colonel William C. Mayville's 173rd Airborne Brigade to develop an updated picture of the locations of Peshmerga units so as to prevent Kurdish, quote, land grabs, end quote, in the Mosul and Kirkuk areas that exacerbated the already tenuous security situation in those mixed ethnicity cities. The situation in Kirkuk was the more pressing of the two. CSJOTFN was concerned that the remaining Iraqi army and Republican Guard units might move south of Kirkuk and back to Tikrit. In addition, the last of the Iraqi military resistance in the north had collapsed, and there was nothing, quote, holding the Kurds back, end quote, from taking the city. Both the KDP and PUK claimed Kirkuk and its oil fields, and shortly after the fall of Baghdad, the groups began accusing each other of rogue efforts to seize them. CJSOTFN also observed a surprising number of internally displaced persons returning to Kirkuk, where coalition leaders were concerned they would target Arab civilians occupying formerly Kurdish homes. Many Kurds were indeed eager to exact reprisals in Kirkuk, from which tens of thousands of Kurds had been expelled by Saddam's regime after the 1991 rebellion. Cleveland tasked Lieutenant Colonel Kenneth E. Tovo with trying to maintain security in Kirkuk, and Tovo, in turn, worked to restrain his Peshmerga counterparts from going into Kirkuk ahead of the coalition troops, a job that proved futile. On April 10th, before either Tovo's men or Mayville's 173rd Airborne Brigade reached Kirkuk, the Iraqi army abandoned the city, and looting began. On the same day, Peshmerga units arrived in Kirkuk and occupied the city in defiance of their prior agreement with U.S. forces. While select Peshmerga units made a concerted effort to stop the looting, others actively participated in looting and began reprisals against the city's Sunni Arab and Turkoman population. Jalal Talabani, the PUK leader, declared an interim government in Kirkuk under PUK leadership, though because of the rapport the U.S. military and Kurds had built during Operation Provide Comfort in the 1990s, Kurdish leaders were somewhat receptive to entreaties to move the Peshmerga out of the city. Tovo's units were also able to reach Kirkuk in time to end some of the reprisals against Arabs. To ensure Kirkuk's civilian population that the city remained under coalition control, Tovo ordered his special operations troops to exchange their Kurdish garb and long hair for military uniforms and haircuts. These troops began handing out small American flags, claiming that they were from American paratroopers. These actions created the visual effect of thousands of American airborne troops in Kirkuk when, in fact, there was only Tovo's small special operations contingent. The ruse worked long enough to allow the larger 173rd Airborne Brigade to move into Kirkuk and make the act a reality. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Waltemeyer, another of Cleveland's subordinates, used similar methods to restrain the KDP Peshmerga from seizing Mosul, even going so far as to put his vehicle, marked with a large American flag, at the head of the Peshmerga convoys racing toward the city, thereby putting a nominal coalition face on operations there. He was joined by reinforcements from the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU, on April 14th. In the interest of preventing ethnic conflict and maintaining order, CJSOTFN worked with Kurdish leaders to withdraw the Peshmerga from Mosul and Kirkuk, which was difficult considering that the Peshmerga had assisted the coalition in clearing both cities in the first place. The situation in Mosul did not stay calm for long. The 26th MEU unwittingly stirred up unrest by failing to stop a returning former Saddamist, Mishan al-Jaburi, from declaring himself the mayor of Mosul. Jaburi's power grab angered local Moslawis, who responded with a large protest on April 20th in which they rioted, burned Jaburi's car, and threw stones at him. Things got out of hand when the 26th MEU intervened to break up the demonstration. Shots fired from the crowd appeared to be aimed at the Marines, who fired back and killed between 10 and 15 civilians in the process, causing the crowd to erupt even further. 
With the situation in Mosul slipping into chaos, CENTCOM ordered CFLCC to move troops north to control the city as soon as feasible. Yet another northern problem came in the disposition of the Mujahideen-e-Khalq, or MEK, an armed Iranian opposition group that had for two decades been sponsored by Saddam. With Saddam's support, the MEK's militia had frequently conducted cross-border operations into Iran from its base in Diyala and had helped the Ba'athist regime crush the 1991 Kurdish rebellion. The MEK had not resisted coalition forces during the invasion, but the group remained armed and was also on the State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. However, no policy was in place for how coalition forces should approach this organization if it did not fight, so the problem fell to CJSOTFN to sort out by default. With plenty of other security challenges to deal with, Cleveland recommended that the coalition give the MEK amnesty in exchange for assisting in identifying Badr Corps infiltration points along the Iranian border, a recommendation a skeptical CENTCOM chose not to take. In the meantime, MEK leaders requested a formal ceasefire with the United States, which Cleveland signed in the absence of any other instructions. The Department of Defense, or DOD, agreed afterward to treat the MEK as a recognized force and accept its armed capitulation until its final disposition could be decided. The Iranian-backed militias like the Badr Corps infiltrating into northern Iraq were another problem. CJSOTFN began tracking Badr Corps infiltration across the Iranian border in mid-April and became concerned that the Badr Corps intended to draw the MEK and Diyala into a fight, derailing the ceasefire negotiations. After CJSOTFN confronted the Badr Corps and threatened to target them with lethal force if they did not leave the area within 24 hours, the group left the region around April 19th. Turkey and the ethnic Turkoman population added a final complication to the already difficult situation in northern Iraq. Coalition leaders were concerned about Turkey's reaction should the Kurds take steps to achieve their ambition of an independent Kurdish state in northern Iraq. Cleveland expected that Turkey might use the Kurdistan Workers' Party's or PKK's annual spring offensive and the instability in Iraq as an excuse to advance a larger Turkish military presence into northern Iraq. CJSOTFN also judged that Turkey was using a Turkoman political party, the Iraqi Turkoman Front, to gain a foothold in Kirkuk and might use any ethnic incidents, however minor, involving the Turkomans as an excuse to infiltrate Turkish paramilitaries into the area. Turkey already used the Peace Monitoring Force, established by the United Nations or UN at the conclusion of the Kurdish Civil War in 1996, as a cover for Turkish Special Forces operations, and those, too, had the potential to expand to Kirkuk. To prevent these various crises from becoming a general conflagration across the north, Cleveland had only three Special Forces battalions and the 173rd Airborne Brigade at his disposal, plus the 26th MEU, the unit that had fired on the crowd in Mosul. The U.S. forces that had been bolstered by 60,000 Peshmerga during the invasion now found themselves responsible for preventing those same Peshmerga allies from unsettling the complex ethno-religious issues that permeated the region, a task CJSOTFN could not hope to accomplish with its limited means. Repositioning the Force, page 121 With the transition to Phase 4 underway, McKiernan, Wallace, and Lieutenant General James Conway met to discuss how best to position their forces to stabilize the country. McKiernan was faced with shortages in his task organization that he had not anticipated. Although his invasion force was sufficient for toppling the regime, he now had approximately two and a half fewer divisions than he had expected to execute the Eclipse II plan. Because CFLCC had advanced on Baghdad so rapidly, the 4th Infantry Division, 1st Armored Division, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, 416th Engineer Brigade, and 352nd Civil Affairs Command were still flowing into theater at the time the regime fell. More importantly, Rumsfeld had canceled the participation of the 1st Cavalry Division in the invasion in February 2003, but McKiernan had assumed that, along with the 1st Armored Division, the 1st Cavalry Division would be available for use with the other follow-on forces in Phase 4. He was therefore dumbfounded when Franks told him in the last days of April 2003 that the SecDef had decided to off-ramp the 1st Cavalry Division. 
he would receive only the 1st Armored Division to augment his thinly spread units, especially considering that 1st MEF was already preparing to depart the theater, and CFSOCC was likewise preparing to redeploy a significant portion of its forces. Franks had also given McKiernan explicit guidance on April 15th that, quote, we're not staying, and we're going to take as much risk leaving Iraq as we did attacking Iraq, end quote. With that bold statement in mind, and recognizing that with the impending departure of the Marines and special operations elements in CJSOTFW, the thinly stretched remaining army divisions would be responsible for securing most of the country, McKiernan and Wallace set about rearranging their units in accordance with the general plans they had discussed prior to the invasion. As planned, they placed the boundary between 5th Corps and 1st MEF at Baghdad, with 5th Corps assuming responsibility for Baghdad itself as well as the provinces to the north and west of the city. 1st MEF was assigned all provinces south of Baghdad with the exception of Basra, which remained under British control. The 3rd Infantry Division, augmented by the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, remained in Baghdad before being relieved by the 1st Armored Division later in the summer and redeploying home. McKiernan and Wallace had intended to place the 101st Airborne Division in Baghdad as well, but with the growing crisis in the north, Wallace decided to dispatch the 101st, the only division whose air assets allowed for a rapid deployment, to confront the rising challenge in Mosul and Nineveh province. Major General Raymond T. Odierno and the 4th Infantry Division relieved the Marines in Salahadin and Tamim, or Kirkuk provinces, and the soon-to-arrive 3rd ACR would move to Anbar to augment CJSOTFW. At CFLCC's direction, 5th Corps began building up Saddam International Airport, renamed Baghdad International Airport in mid-April, as the coalition's future headquarters for the theater. Two factors prevented the immediate reposturing of CFLCC's forces. The first was current unit positions. Quote, the difficulty was that everyone was out of position to move into their planned Phase 4 areas at the time the regime fell, end quote, recalled Wallace. The 5th Corps units could not move north until the Marines assumed responsibility for the southern zone, and the Marines could not move south until the 4th Infantry Division assumed control of Salahadin province and the 3rd Infantry Division took control of Baghdad in its entirety. In other words, the major units were about to conduct a, quote, clockwise relief in place, end quote, so that the center could get set. The other factor that prevented an immediate Phase 4 reset was the need to provide security for the Shia holiday and its associated pilgrimage known as Arba'in, scheduled to occur between April 20th and 23rd. This holiday commemorated the martyrdom of Imam Hussein in 680 AD, grandson of the Prophet Muhammad. It involved a pilgrimage to the shrine city of Karbala, where Imam Hussein was killed by the army of Caliph Yazid. Saddam had banned the pilgrimage for the previous 25 years. However, the coalition intended to facilitate Shia participation in the pilgrimage for the first time in the newly liberated Iraq. Wallace directed the 2nd Brigade 82nd Airborne Division in Samawa with some augmentation from the 101st Airborne Division to provide security for the more than 1 million pilgrims who participated in this event. With Arba'in complete, 5th Corps set about relieving 1st MEF of its responsibilities in Baghdad and northern Iraq. Between April 15th and 24th, the 4th Infantry Division and the 3rd ACR offloaded the remainder of their equipment and personnel in Kuwait, and the 2nd Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division, assumed control of Najaf, Karbala, and Hilla. The 4th Infantry Division moved north toward Baghdad, conducted a passage of lines through the 3rd Infantry Division's battle space, and then relieved 1st MEF units in Samara and Tikrit, establishing full control of their new area of operations by April 20th. The 4th Infantry Division assumed operational control of the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Kirkuk and tactical control of CJSOTFN by the end of April, after which CJSOTFN handed the Kirkuk security mission to the 173rd and then transferred the MEK camp in Diyala to the 4th Infantry Division's control. As the 4th Infantry Division moved into the upper Tigris River Valley, two brigades of the 101st Airborne Division conducted one of the largest and longest air assaults in U.S. military history, moving almost 500 kilometers by helicopter from the Karbala region to Mosul to begin operations to calm the northern city. Elsewhere, 5th Corps completed its relief in place of the 1st MEF and CJSOTFW units in Baghdad, 
freeing First MEF to move south and assume responsibility for Samawa, Diwaniya, Karbala, Najaf, and Hilla by April 23rd, and allowing the brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division to move to Anbar province in response to the deteriorating security situation there. British forces relieved 1st MEF in Maizan, and 1st MEF began to prepare the provinces under its control for the transition to a multinational headquarters so that it could redeploy to the United States. As this vast reset began, CFLCC became increasingly concerned about the transit of foreign fighters, former regime leaders and assets, and museum artifacts across Iraq's borders with Syria and Jordan. On April 10th, CENTCOM had ordered CFSOCC to take control of Anbar's border crossings, where it was to prevent Iraqi regime leaders from escaping across the border while apprehending any foreign fighters trying to cross in either direction, and preventing loot and cash from transiting out of the country. CJSOTFN, recognizing that some of the top regime high-value targets, or HVTs, were using Highway 1 out of Mosul to flee into Syria, moved to secure the highway to cut off that escape route. CJSOTFW requested that it be relieved of the Haditha Dam so it could begin securing border crossings in the area and hunt the HVTs on CENTCOM's deck of cards. Accordingly, a battalion of the 101st Airborne Division arrived at Haditha Dam and relieved the CJSOTFW forces there by April 20th. Securing border posts was not the only difficulty in Anbar. McKiernan had originally intended to put the 1st Cavalry Division in the province at the conclusion of major combat operations, but with that division no longer at his disposal, McKiernan and Wallace decided that Anbar would have to be an economy of force mission. As early as April 13th, however, McKiernan's command had received reports that the Dulaim and Al-Burisha tribes had taken control of military equipment formerly belonging to the Iraqi 12th Armored Division near Ramadi, and that they had also been somewhat successful in forcing foreign fighters out of the province. Because of these early reports, CFLCC had expected the situation in Anbar to be favorable to the coalition presence, but as the reset began, it became apparent that an armored cavalry regiment alone was insufficient to quell the deteriorating situation there. Demonstrations in Fallujah and Anbar's provincial capital of Ramadi grew increasingly violent, with the local police either unwilling or unable to restrain the crowds or stop the looting. CFLCC assessed that former regime loyalists or paramilitaries remained in the area, which had not been cleared during the invasion and were inciting violence. Coalition analysts also suspected tribal factions were playing a role in the problem, but had little awareness of the root causes of local tensions in these areas. General Wallace temporarily sent the 3rd Squadron 7th Cavalry to Ramadi on April 14th to better appraise the situation, but by the third week of April, Fallujah and Ramadi were spiraling out of control, and the Ramadi police chief begged the coalition for reinforcements. Concluding that the situation in Anbar could not wait for the 3rd ACR to arrive from Kuwait, Wallace decided to send the 2nd Brigade 82nd Airborne Division in southern Iraq to Ramadi ahead of the 3rd ACR's arrival in order to thicken the thin coalition presence there. Unfortunately, Anbaris became even further incensed when soldiers of the 82nd Airborne Division returned fire coming from a crowd of angry Fallujah citizens, killing 17 locals. The 3rd ACR then took over the province from the 82nd Airborne Division on April 28th after relieving the battalion of the 101st Airborne Division at Haditha Dam. Although the coalition's corps and division boundaries fell along Iraq's provincial borders and were based on what CFLCC and its subordinate units had judged to be operationally appropriate, they were incongruous in many places with Iraq's physical and human terrain, and were not coordinated with ORHA's northern, central, and southern zones of influence. The division and corps boundaries also did not account for the areas most likely to be difficult to control, nor did they align with the zones of operation Saddam had used to control the country. As a result, the new coalition operational boundaries created opportunities for hostile forces to exploit. The 4th Infantry Division's area of operations included Salahuddin and Diyala provinces, split by the Hamrin mountain range and the Diyala River, while the boundary between the 101st and the 4th Infantry Division arbitrarily bisected the upper Tigris River Valley. This arrangement meant that the division controlling Tikrit also controlled the Diyala Valley, even though Diyala was customarily linked to Baghdad, while the traditional link between Mosul and Tikrit was broken. 
The boundary between the 101st and the Anbar-based 3rd ACR, meanwhile, bisected the Jazira, the large desert in northwestern Iraq that stretched into Syria, placing the traditional smuggling routes between Iraq and Syria on a seam between units. Although a boundary between the Baghdad-based 3rd Infantry Division and the 3rd ACR was established, the allocation of forces created a large gap in the physical presence of coalition forces between western Baghdad and Fallujah, leaving uncovered the, quote, western belts, end quote, area that later became al-Qaeda in Iraq's biggest staging base against Baghdad. Finally, Anbar province itself, later the heartland of Sunni resistance groups, was an enormous area that bordered Syria, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, far too large for a brigade-sized element to control. By the end of April, CFLCC units were in their new, unanticipated Phase 4 areas, adjusting to new surroundings with little background data or guidance on how to proceed. Few, if any, CFLCC units had had time to mature security operations completely in their initial positions before the entire coalition spent three weeks conducting reliefs in place, just as Iraq's urban areas most urgently needed security. Additionally, CFLCC was so busy repositioning units that it had little time to provide an overarching strategic direction to its subordinate units. As a result, divisions in each region developed their own mechanisms for addressing their unique circumstances. The 101st Airborne Division established a civil military operations center in Mosul and prepared to host municipal elections. The 4th Infantry Division in the Tikrit area focused on presence patrols and security operations in its contentious areas, which had been the most fervent Saddamist strongholds and had never been cleared during the invasion phase. The 82nd Airborne Division transitioned from conducting pilgrimage security to intensive patrolling and security operations in the increasingly restive Anbar province. The U.S. Marines and British forces in southern Iraq focused on stability operations but implemented force protection standards in accordance with local commanders' guidance rather than CFLCC's direction. It was becoming clear that CFLCC's troop numbers had been sufficient to topple the regime, but, as General Eric Shinseki had predicted, were inadequate for securing the country, especially without the expected assistance of the Iraqi army. Militants and Political Violence, page 125. Foreign Fighters, Fedayeen, and IEDs. On April 15th, CFLCC made the determination that all Iraqi conventional and Republican Guard forces had abandoned their positions and were combat ineffective. Various CFLCC and CFSOCC units accepted the sporadic surrenders of senior military officials and commanders at the core level and below, while a special operations task force began searching for fugitive members of the senior military leadership. Most of the Ba'ath Party militias and Fedayeen were believed to have either fled or gone underground in Iraq's major cities as well. Initially, CFLCC believed that residual attacks against coalition troops were the work of foreign fighters, not Iraqis. In mid-April, CFLCC analysts judged that foreign fighters were the most significant enemy threat in Baghdad and believed them to be responsible for the sporadic ambushes and sniper fire directed against coalition troops. By late April, however, CFLCC shifted from targeting foreign fighters to destroying hostile former regime elements and death squads that coalition analysts now believed to be behind ambushes, sniper fire, and grenade attacks. Concerns about this activity increased as Saddam's April 28th birthday approached, and CFLCC units prepared for widespread attacks and demonstrations spurred by the former regime elements. The nuclei of these activities were Tikrit, where the 4th Infantry Division encountered large pockets of resistance from Taji to Baiji, and Anbar, where the 82nd Airborne Division and the 3rd ACR had difficulty addressing the former regime threat within the almost daily protests in Ramadi and Fallujah. Coalition ground forces also encountered a type of attack they had not really seen during the invasion. Remote detonated and suicide improvised explosive devices, or IED, and vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices, or VBIED. The number of suicide bombings and remote detonated IEDs steadily increased throughout April. On April 14th, Marines on patrol in Baghdad were seriously wounded when attacked by a suicide bomber wearing an explosive vest, a practice that became gruesomely common in the months and years to come. 
Shia reprisals and hints of Iranian influence. Unknown to the coalition at first, Iraqi society had only just begun to respond to the absence of a repressive and sectarian rule. Reprisal attacks against the former regime began almost immediately. The Badr Corps militia led by Hadi al-Amiri had spent months preparing lists of regime loyalists it intended to target once Saddam was no longer in power. According to Iraqi politician Ali Alawi, shortly after major combat operations ceased, approximately 10,000 Badr Corps personnel organized into death squads began hunting and executing senior Sunni regime loyalists, as well as Shia citizens who had collaborated with the regime. Badr acquired weapons by looting Ba'ath Party militia and Iraqi army depots, rapidly established footholds in Basra, Amara, and Baghdad, and set its sights on Diyala as well. In response to the Badr reprisals, some other militias and tribes began to form protection forces in Baghdad and across southern Iraq. CFLCC, meanwhile, began to monitor Badr Corps activities and infiltrations through Mizan province more closely as reports surfaced that the group was acquiring weapons from supporters inside Iraq. In the southern provinces, 1st MEF and the British 1st Armored Division also saw signs that groups linked to Iran were having a disruptive effect in their areas of responsibility. Iranian-linked Shia clerics used anti-coalition messages in their Friday religious sermons in April, something Sunni imams were doing elsewhere as well. Coalition units also suspected Iranian agents of inciting public disturbances and undermining the coalition's ability to establish new local governments, leading CFLCC to caution its units that Iran might try to develop shadow governments in southern Iraqi towns. These concerns were amplified when, on April 25th, citizens of Kut removed a new city council member they suspected of being an Iranian puppet. First MEF and British troops later apprehended some Iranian citizens in Iraq and reported that Iran might be sending agents to infiltrate the Arba'in pilgrimage and disrupt coalition stability operations more broadly. The Hoy Murder In April 2003, coalition troops inadvertently stumbled into the long-standing intra-Shia battle among rival religious families in Najaf. On April 5th, Ayatollah Abdul Majid al-Khoi, son of the former Grand Marja and a leader of the 1991 uprising, returned to Najaf from his 12-year exile in London. Upon arriving in the holy city, Khoi moved to the Imam Ali shrine. News of his return quickly spread to supporters of Muqtada Sadr, son of the murdered Grand Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr. At the time, Muqtada Sadr was largely unknown to the coalition other than as the son of the venerated Shia cleric assassinated by Saddam's regime in 1999. Sadr and his followers, however, had a popular following in Najaf and viewed Khoi as a Western-backed interloper, much as they viewed the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq and the Badr Corps as Iranian-backed interlopers. On April 10th, Personnel from the 5th Special Forces Group in Najaf introduced the 101st Airborne Division leadership to Khoi, whose presence in the city seemed to offer a local partnership for the stability operations and reconstruction to come. However, Khoi was dead before the day was out. Within hours of his arrival, a mob of Sadr's supporters made their way to the Imam Ali shrine, where Khoi was meeting with Haider Kaledar, the shrine's regime-appointed caretaker. Attacking Khoi and his small entourage, the Sadrist mob, reportedly led by future Asaib al-Al-Haq, leader of the righteous, leader Gais al-Khazali, and Muqtada Sadr's brother-in-law, Riyad al-Nuri, killed Kaladar and dragged the gunshot-wounded Khoi down the street to Sadr's door, where Sadr allegedly denied Khoi sanctuary. The Sadrist mob then killed Khoi in a nearby shop. This shocking murder, of which the coalition was only dimly aware when it happened, had profound political consequences for Iraq and the coalition. Two notable events occurred on May 1, 2003. At the strategic level, then-President George W. Bush announced that U.S. forces had achieved victory and declared an end to major combat operations in Iraq. The pronouncement took place aboard the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln in front of a banner emblazoned with the words, Mission Accomplished. That optimistic declaration belied the semi-controlled chaos on the ground. The other event was less publicized, but was important for the ground forces. 
On May 1st, CENTCOM formally announced a full transition to Phase 4 stability operations, and CFLCC, instead of transitioning its operations to a follow-on command or agency, became dual-hatted as the Combined Joint Task Force for Iraq, numbered CJTF-7. It was already apparent to the ground force commanders that the mission was far from accomplished. When Saddam fled the capital, the physical presence of the Iraqi state had disappeared, and no entity or organization, including the coalition, was postured to take its place. Though most of the looting and rioting had died down by the end of April, governance, utilities, and threats to stability varied hugely from region to region. With little planning or direction, CFLCC's units took on missions to defeat the remaining enemy forces, stop looting, contain demonstrations and reprisals, distribute humanitarian assistance, engage in widespread reconstruction, and build Iraqi governance capacity. But they did so by using unit boundaries that were misguided for Iraq's geography and human terrain. CFLCC also struggled to allocate its comparatively small number of forces properly for the growing operational requirements at hand, while incorporating a host of new coalition partners, humanitarian aid organizations, and contractors into its battle space. Enemy activity increased in April, and enemy tactics, techniques, and procedures, as well as its lack of identifiable organizations, confounded the coalition. These mounting challenges were oddly juxtaposed with 1st MEF's and the 3rd Infantry Division's preparations to leave Iraq. The coalition military's inability to meet Iraqi expectations and secure the country in the wake of a collapsed state also initiated a divide between the coalition and Iraqi society that only grew wider as coalition leaders set about implementing deeply misguided policies in the summer of 2003. End of Chapter 5. We're Here. Now What? Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.